This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. My next guest has written a number of articles on parenting, a particular type of parenting, a word that we've all heard before, helicopter parenting. And she has written, and we're going to talk about this and we're going to read some of what she's written to you, but some advice that you could give your child some help you could give your child to actually make them A, employable, and B, not miserable later on if you follow some simple rules. And the rules are not buy them whatever they want to get them through school, pay for all their education and make them do nothing, do whatever is necessary to guide them through school. To the contrary, as I understand it, let me bring in Dr. Marcia Sorota, who is a psychiatrist and founder of the Ruthless Compassion Institute and an author who writes regularly on the Huffington Post in Canada. Um, Let your kids struggle their way through a little bit once in a while, and uh, things are probably going to be a little bit better. Am I reasonably close, Dr. Sorota? Um, yes. First of all, Scott, just let me say I'm I'm fighting off a cold, so if mm. I if I start to cough, uh, don't uh, <laughs> you know? No worries. Okay. So yes, I think what what I'm really saying is that kids need a combination of love and limits and guidance. So you can't indulge them, you can't overprotect them, you can't cushion their falls, you can't bubble wrap them, and you can't deprive them of the consequences of their actions, or they fail to learn important life lessons. And these life lessons will really make the difference between them being successful in their careers and not. But don't you realize when you say that, that that flies in the face of every bit of parenting that we've all done for the last 20 years now? I don't know every bit. I don't know every bit, but I think a lot of it. I think there's definitely a trend to to uh, go in that helicopter parenting way, and I think it's a reaction, in part, against more harsh parenting styles from previous generations. But I think it's also because people these days are too nice. You know, I wrote my Mm. recent book. It's called "Be Kind, Not Nice," and it's available on Amazon. People might want to have a look. And it's really about how we're all trying too hard to please each other and and make each other like us. And instead of being parents who want to parent, people are more parenting to be popular or to be pals or to have their kids approve of them. And that's not the best way to parent because it's not really thinking about what's good for the child. It's, it's really about whether the parents, you know, get their children's approval. So people have to stop being too nice as parents, first of all. They have to stop reacting to previous kinds of parenting that they might have experienced or their parents might have experienced, and they have to really think about what serves their children. And what serves their children most is taking a step back and letting the children fall down, learn from their mistakes, have consequences, and also showing the children the benefit of hard work, responsibility, and even sacrifice when it comes to school and career, because that's what's going to get them ahead. And that's what's going to get them succeeding over the rest of their their cohort. And, and, you know, it makes all the sense in the world, but let me come back to the point for just one second, and that is, while it makes every bit of sense, if you were to do what you say as you say to do it, which mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, but you would get such stink eye from other parents around because you would be not doing what so many others are doing. You would not be, as you say, bubble wrapping your kid. If your kid got into a scrap at school, and I'm not arguing for schoolyard fights, but you know, running to their immediate defense and demanding that the kid who touched them should be in trouble, whatever, all these things that we do, you're saying, you know, back off a little bit with this. 
Well, I recommend that these parents, these Think High parents, will go to my website, marciasorotamd.com, and keep an eye out for my upcoming courses on Udemy. I'm going to be teaching people how to be kind, not nice, including how to be kind parents and not nice parents, and see the, va- the value of this and see the benefit of this. And, you know, parenting is not a popularity contest. It's not about which parent is most popular, most loved, most, you know, um, thought of highly. It's really about what's good for the children. So if the children are annoyed at you because you're being a good parent for occasionally, or if your neighbors are um, giving you the stink eye because you're parenting differently, but your children end up successful and happy and are thriving, isn't it worth it? Let's do something here because one of the things you've done, a lot of the stuff you've written again on Huffington Post Canada is picking up at the, not the end of a child's life, certainly, but at the end of childhood, as opposed to making this a child guide book, yes. you've picked up a lot when, at the point when basically parents are now passing their kids off into society. Let's start there for a second, because you have written quite a bit about the fact that when kids get to university, when kids are going into the job force, into the workforce, this kind of stuff has left them, what's the word, ill-suited, unprepared, a lot of time to do that. Tell me, we'll start there. What are, what are the effects of this kind of parenting? Before we go back and talk about whether it can be changed, what kind of things, what are we finding that the people who have now grown up with this, they're in university now, they're graduating, they're trying to get work. What are we finding the impact of all this is? Well, in my article called Helicopter Parents Are Raising Unemployable Children on Huffington Post, by the way, it's, I've got over 90,000 likes for this article, so it, it has clearly hit a nerve. And I, what I'm saying is that when parents do too much for their children, overprotect them, deprive them of consequences of their choices, these children are not able to be successful in the work world. I'll give you an example. One of my friends was telling me about a, a colleague at work who was pushing very hard to have their son interviewed for a job. And and uh, my, col- my friend was saying, okay, you know, have him come in. And then the mother said, oh, no, he's traveling. And so my friend said, all right, well, when will he be back? And the colleague said, he'll be back on Tuesday. So she said, okay, I'll see him Wednesday. And then the mother said, oh, you know what, he's probably going to be too tired. So this mother is pushing <laughs> on the one hand to tell, to, to get this son a job, but, but she's already protecting him. Oh, he'll be too tired. Whereas this colleague, this friend of mine told me that the way she got her job was she was out on vacation and she Skyped three interviews and finally got hired. She, she took the time with the time difference and her jet lag and her exhaustion to get on the phone and Skype and, and interview because she didn't want to miss the opportunity. And there she is employed and doing very well. So, you know, these parents are protecting their children. They're really coddling their children. And what it does is it gives these children very bad attitudes. They feel overly entitled. They're not willing to, to put in that extra bit of effort that really gets them hired and keeps them employed. And, and they are having a lot of difficulties. They have more depression. They have more conflicts with other people in the workplace. They lose their jobs more. And, and they are really struggling. The, the rate of depression in the millennials right now is staggering. And it's because they're coming from this helicopter parenting. So parents are not doing their children any favors by overprotecting them. Of course, it's coming from love and, and good intentions, but it's backfiring terrifically. And, and parents need to see now that this is not what is in the child's best interest. And really, 
it's, it's the kind of thing that you can start at any point. You can start to address it with little children. You can start to address it with children in their 20s. It's never too late for a young person to get their head on straight. Of all the things you just said, and there was a lot of good stuff in there, the one thing that is just sticking in my brain right now is that a mother was on the phone arranging the job interview yes. for, the, for someone who is supposedly out of university. And, and, uh, that, and I think that says an awful lot. But... Let's go back to the depression part, because we hear a lot now, I mean, mental health is a big talking point, and there seems to be, whether there is or not, there, and this is your line of work, there seems to be an awful lot more of it, realistic, legitimate, a lot more depression, a lot more anxiety, and you've written that there is a lot more of it in the millennial age group who are, come, who are reaching that point when they are trying to move into the workforce. Why? What's the connection? Well, because they are too overprotected... Um, here in this Washington Post article that I quoted by Brooke Donatone, and it's a 2013 article from the Journal of Child and Family Studies that found that college students who, who experienced helicopter parenting reported higher levels of depression because, and the article says, intrusive parenting interferes with the development of autonomy and competence. So helicopter parents, parenting leads to in, increased dependence and decreased ability to complete tasks without parental supervision. And so what happens is these children lack confidence, they lack self-esteem, they lack a sense of agency, they lack a sense of mastery, they feel overwhelmed, they feel lost, they feel frightened, they feel helpless, and they feel anxious, and that creates this depression. So overprotecting our children, coddling them, cushioning their fall, not showing them that actions have consequences, actually is very hurtful to them ultimately. It, did we see, um, maybe not the same, but there was a time, probably not that long ago, that a lot of people, I'm guessing even people who are the parents of these kids now, may have grown up with parents who were more distant and didn't do any of this stuff for them, which may be the, why they have, the pendulum has swung so much. But what happened to the kids who never had anything done for them? Did we see mental health issues or other problems with them, or did that make them just far more, I don't know, determined to get where they're going on their own? How did, how did it affect them when you have less or almost no parental involvement? So like I was saying earlier, that a lot of this helicopter parenting is you know, in part trying to be too nice and also in part this reaction to previous generations of parents. I think that any extreme is not good, right? We always want to have that balance of being nurturing, being attached to the children, being supportive, being loving, but also not overdoing it. So when you have overly distant parents who don't nurture, who don't protect, who don't guide, that's also not good. And you get these also people who have difficulties. But interestingly enough, it seems like overly protective parenting has a worse result than under-protective or hmm. under-attentive parenting. Somehow the coddling is more crippling because it prevents the child from developing autonomy. If a child is left to their own devices, they have to solve their own problems. But if the child has everything done for them, they never learn how to solve problems. And when faced with a workplace situation where they have to think on their own feet, they are not able to. So I would say that even though too much neglect is certainly not what we want, overly protected, overly coddled, overly bubble-wrapped, overly cushioned children seem to do even worse than ones who are slightly left to their own, their own devices. And this, though, is not just, and, and, and I, it was dawning on me as I was thinking about you coming on tonight, this is not just parents, because any, I was thinking about this, I've been very involved with my kids in sports, and so you're involved with coaching and other things. 
anything that you have adults involved overseeing children now, whether it's sports or whether it's school or whether it's anything else, it seems like all adults in positions of authority have brought this kind of overprotectiveness on. Now, some of it is because you're afraid of a lawsuit or something else, but it seems like it's everywhere. Even if you go out of the house, you can't avoid it. I have a number of uh, friends and some patients who are teachers, and they're, they're teachers in grade school and they're teachers in college, and they're telling me quite shocking stories about how their boards or their institutions are telling them that they can't fail their students. Yes. Uh, it's bad for their self-esteem. But then these students are passing without knowing, having the knowledge and skills and also are not being challenged and are not being tested. And so when they get out into the workplace, they really can't function. So we're doing a terrible disservice as teachers. And as, the same with coaches. If coaches are rewarding everybody just for showing up, um, you know, kids the, are going to get The trophy for everyone. Well, yeah, and they're going to get into the workplace, and they're going to think that all they have to do is show up, and they're supposed to be promoted, and they're going to have a rude awakening because showing up is the bare minimum. You have to perform. And if everyone gets a trophy just for showing up, oh, boy, are they getting the wrong impression. And the, the tragic thing is that the ones who suffer are the young people. So parents, if they really love their children, they have to see that although they're they're really doing what they think is best. It's really what's worst for their children. But Marcia, even then, if you are the parent who is doing this right, mm-hmm. if you send your kid out into life with school, with sports, with drama, you go to band, I mean, whatever it is you do, your kid is still going to be subjected to these things. They may not get it at home, but they're still going to face all these things that you're saying are not ideal wherever they go, because it's everywhere. Yes, but if you really are parenting with that combination of of tough love that I'm talking about, that ruthless compassion, which is loving them, nurturing, protecting them, guiding them, but also letting them face the consequences of their choices, letting them learn from their mistakes, letting them be disappointed, letting them fail, letting them have challenges that they have to meet, and letting them work hard and develop values and, and good, good work ethic, you're going to stand them in really good stead in the world and in their lives. And so when they face situations where they're coddled or spoiled by teachers or coaches, they'll think, this is ridiculous, and they'll seek out challenges. They'll seek mm. out situations that push them because it will give them that self-esteem. Because when they sh- get a trophy for showing up, they'll see the difference between getting a trophy for working hard and deserving it versus getting it for just showing up, and they won't want that. So the more the parents really show the benefit of the child being more autonomous, thinking on their feet, standing on their feet, working hard, earning their success, the more the child will seek out that kind of thing and will not take seriously when people spoil them or coddle them. They'll think it's silly. Do most or do all people who work in the psychology, psychiatry, parenting, leadership, whatever you want to call it, do most people agree with you on this? I don't know. I hope so, but I really Have you heard from people who say you're out of your mind? You've got to protect our kids. No, I, I haven't heard from anybody. And, you know, certainly some people who I've been speaking to uh, recently agree, but you know I don't think it's talked about enough. I don't think this is a topic that has enough focus, and I think that's why my first Huffington Post article got so much attention because obviously there's a need for people to have this discussion. So really, what I want is for people to sit down and talk to each other about what kind of parenting they're doing and how their style of parenting, if it is helicopter parenting, how it's really hurting their children. It is uh, 
it, it's probably not a new concept. I'm quite, pretty sure it's not a new concept, but you've worded it, and I'm going to tell people in just a second when I when we hang up, I'm going to tell people where they can find these because the, how you've worded it and how you've written it is uh, is very clear and very il- illustrative and very insightful, and I really appreciate the time you spent today talking about it. Oh, thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you can go to huffingtonpost.ca. She was the one saying she was going to cough, and now I'm about to die here. A uh, couple that you can find of hers. Uh, headline, here's some graduation advice that could save your kid's career. Another one with the headline on it that says, helicopter parents are raising unemployable children. But let me just read you a couple paragraphs just before we go to the break here. From the one about, here's some graduation advice that could save your child's career. And she starts by talking about commencement addresses that people, your kids, when they're graduating from university, we're no longer talking about three or four-year-olds. We're talking about, if you're listening and you've got a kid who's in university or in high school or a grandchild, whatever, they're sitting there listening to a commencement speech. And she writes this, what most, if not all of these speech givers aren't saying is that if you've grown up with parents who overprotected you, did too much for you and made you feel like everything was coming to you, you're going to be at an even greater disadvantage than the average graduate in today's marketplace. Helicopter parents make it much too easy for their college-age kids. Again, now we're not talking about kids who are tiny. We're talking about adult kids. That's my words. Back to hers. They load up the cafeteria cards so the kid never has to cook. They send their kid care packages of food and clothing so the kid never has to worry about those things. What this does is prevent the kid from learning how to stand on their own two feet as an adult. These helicopter parents love their kids, but they're doing them a terrible disservice as their kids are coming out of college and university, lacking the basic skills and mindset that will set them up for success. It is, um, it is worth reading these pieces. Again, uh, the author's name, who we were just chatting to, Marcia M- uh, Marcia, M-A-R-C-I-A, Sorota, S-I-R-O-T-A. Here's some graduation advice that could save your child's career. Google that and read it. It's really worth your while. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There is somebody down in the States, speaking of the States, who put in the time to rate and rank every single song the Beatles ever put on vinyl, ever ever recorded. They ranked every single Beatles song. And I figure if they put that much time in, we can take a little time to count down their top 10. What do you think should be in the list of the top 10 best Beatles songs of all time? There's 250 or 80 or whatever it is to choose from. So you've got choices, but start thinking about it. What Beatles song should be in the top 10? What should you be hearing at the bottom of this hour? We will be chatting about that. But before any of that, I want to bring in our good friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, who joins me now. Mr. O'Neill, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, it was a pleasure, Mr. Scott, and I'm picking Get Back. Get, you're going to put Get Back? All right. All right. We'll put, the, put down, now it's not a quiz answer, but yes, we will see if Bubba got that one right. I love that song. Uh, although I, easily there could be 50 songs that should be in the top 10. Absolutely. For, for, with that group, absolutely. The, you know, there could be, totally off topic, there could probably be 25 cover versions of their songs that could be in their top 10. But anyway. So here's the story from last night, and we're not going to talk just in the basketball sense, but basketball is a great leaping off point because last night the Golden State Warriors win the NBA championship. They beat the Cleveland Cavaliers four games to one. And Kevin Durant is the MVP, and Kevin Durant 
played outstanding basketball all through the finals. He was he was terrific. He was the he was the second best player on the court after LeBron James. I actually before we get to the whole Kevin Durant thing, has the NBA ever done what the NHL has done with the Conn Smythe Trophy and given the MVP to a player from a losing team? I don't think that's ever happened, Scott. I thought that last this year they could have. I thought LeBron James, even though he lost, was by far the best player on the court. Well, I mean, for, for the first player to ever average a triple-double in, in, in postseason, in, in an NBA final situation, I don't think this is the one rare situation... I think in sports where it would have been totally acceptable for that to happen last night, and I don't even think a Golden State Warrior fan would have booed. Well, no, they aren't in Nashville. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, don't want to be catfish. That's for sure. I love the catfish thing. I'm just I, I'm relieved that nobody has yet been brained by a flying catfish, but I love the tradition of the flying catfish. I do. But anyway, so here's the story, though. And this is, this is not just a basketball story. This is any sport because we've seen this in other sports as well. Kevin Durant, great championship series, helps his team win the championship, second best player on the court, best on his team. But, but, Kevin Durant last year played for the Oklahoma City Thunder, a team that was leading Golden State three games to one and lost that series, and then decides, rather than stick around and try to really do something special and beat the giant team that is the big, you know, Goliath that's out there, I'm, I'm a free agent. I'm going to leave my team and join a team that already had 73 wins and basically all but guarantee myself that I'm going to win a championship. And what I want, and we've seen this with other athletes in other sports, when somebody who has been tied to a franchise for a long time and leaves just to go win a championship, Bubba, is that person heroic or allowed, or should you feel good about them getting that title? Or do you look at them and go, you know what, that is a pathetic way to win a championship. Win it the old-fashioned way with blood and sweat and tears and maybe not even winning it. Well, rather than just being dragged to a title. Well, I don't I don't think he dragged himself to a title. I thought I saw plenty of blood, sweat and tears. I've actually done a a 180 on this, Scott, and and for most of the season and certainly when it happened during the off season, I was upset at Durant. But you know what? I've I've kind of changed my opinion on the way that happened. He didn't I think had he been a bystander or a guy that just sort of played along Stephen Curry and 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 you know won a championship that way. I probably might not have changed my mind, but he put together spectacular performances, not just in this five game series, but he was unbelievable in the postseason. He was unbelievable all season long, and to see a guy go for his dream. I think every team, if you don't want to win a championship, I don't know what you're doing in sports. He had fulfilled his his obligation to the Oklahoma City Thunder. He played there for eight years, signed two contracts. And as we all know in sports, when you're a free agent, you can go wherever. It wasn't like he just wanted Golden State. Golden State wanted him, and it turned out to be a wonderful marriage, quite honestly. Except... Here, here's the problem I have with that. Let's go back to the 1980s just for a second for two reasons. One, because I want to plug. Apparently, there's a fantastic new documentary that's coming out. It'll be on um, Canadian TV, I think, next week sometime about the 1980 rivalry between the Celtics and the Lakers. But you go back to the 1980s, and the Lakers were the dominant team of the 80s. The 
Boston Celtics won won, won two cha- uh, three championships. The Lakers won four and were in almost one of those teams was in every single championship series of that era. But if Larry Bird had said, "You know what? I'm tired of losing to the Lakers. I'm going to jump to the to, I'm tired of losing to the Lakers. I'm going to go and play for the Lakers." That to me would have been a pathetic Thing. He stuck with the Celtics and said, no, the, the glory is in beating the team that we seemingly can't beat. And that's why I have a problem with what Kevin Durant and the other people who, when Roger Clemens decided to go to the Yankees to try and latch on and win a championship, all these things. If you're a great player, win it yourself. Win it with the team you've got. Build the team around you and take on the Giant. Don't join the Giant. Yeah, I think that, you know what, Scott, I think when you look at that team that he played for, the Oklahoma City Thunder, I think this, to me, this is what separates this this situation from many that you've just actually named there. And really, quite honestly, you could go far back as Babe Ruth if you really wanted to, for guys who, you know, jump ship for, you know, for bigger pastures and, and, and playing for bigger named teams. Because certainly playing for the Yankees at that time was a bigger deal than playing for the Red Sox. Yeah, but he was yeah. traded. He out of, It wasn't in his control. Babe Ruth was traded. But I know what you're saying. Was, there have been lots of guys who did it. Willing, I, I could be wrong, but I thought there was a willing trade that he, he actually wanted to go there. Anyway, suffice is the point. There was a situation there with the Oklahoma City Thunder that he played with a guy by the name of Russell Westbrook. And Russell Westbrook, to a man, is one of the better players in the league, may win the MVP trophy for the season this year based on the incredible season that he had this year. But it's well-known around the league that he's one of the more selfish players in the league, doesn't like to share the basketball. And I think we saw that team go as far, even though they were up 3-1 and lost in seven games to the Warriors, perhaps Kevin Durant figured – this is as far as I can see myself ever going with this team and playing with that guy. So I think there were some personnel issues that maybe he thought he'd be happier playing somewhere else, and he made that move. And I, and I think what he proved is that when you're playing on a team that learns to share the basketball, those are the teams that win championships. About two years ago, didn't we start hearing rumblings because Kevin Durant was hanging around with Drake? Didn't we start hearing rumblings that Kevin Durant was going to come to the Raptors? Well, See, that was, that, was, that was all started by Drake. That sure was started it was. all by, by, by Kevin Durant. Okay, no, no, I understand that. But my point is, if you were deciding that you couldn't play with Russell Westbrook, rather than going to a team that already had 73 wins and had won a championship without you, it would have even been palatable to me if he had gone to a good team but that hadn't made it there yet to try and be the guy who makes the difference. This, to me, him joining the Golden State Warriors was like a a kid joining the grade 8 team and beating the grade 3 team in an intramural game and going, wow, we won, look how great that was. There's no glory to me in Kevin Durant winning because he already went to, he went to a team that probably most years beats the Cavaliers even without him. Even without him, they probably win that series. We don't know that because... Well, they did it once. We don't know that because what we do know is the team that he went to lost their title to that very Cleveland Cavaliers team. And yes, yeah, but they also had beaten them the year before. And that was, that, that's the year before with... The, with I understand. I understand. With, with a, you know, a totally different... I mean, they're, the stars are the same, but the, the, the background players, uh, somewhat of a different team. 
I f- and, and just lest anyone think that I'm picking on Kevin Durant, I felt the exact same way when Ray Bork left the Boston Bruins and went to Colorado. I thought that is a cheese ball move. You know what? Your legacy and your reputation and your history is more glorious if you stick with the team, even if you never win a championship and you hang, stick it out and you try to win rather than jumping on the roller coaster that's going towards a title. I, I, I hated when Ray Bork did that. But, but isn't it fair to say and we, that we've seen this in sports many times that you're, you're judged by championships? You there, are, are, there, are, there, are, there are a few, there are a number of guys, very, very few guys I can think of just off the top of my head right now that were stand-up Stand, uh, outstanding players with teams that never won championships that we'll say ended up in the Hall of Fame. I mean, comes to coming to mind to me is, is a Jim Kelly um, that stayed in Buffalo. But I mean, remember the first part of his career, he didn't want to be in Buffalo. True, he stayed in the USFL. True, but what if Jim Kelly, after the first two years of the Buffalo Bills losing the Super Bowl, said, "You know what? Forget this. I'm joining the Dallas Cowboys," and went to a team that was going to win with or without him? Does Jim Kelly then become the hero? Does he, when we judge him, then do we say Jim Kelly won two Super Bowls, or we say Jim Kelly, yeah, he got a couple rings, but he really didn't do it? Like the guys that we judge as being greats are the guys who led their teams and pushed their teams over the top. I, I, again, these guys who just when Roger Clemens did it, and Roger Clemens was great with the Blue Jays for those. What was it two two years? He was with the Jays, and then goes to the Yankees, who were a powerhouse, and you go. They would have won without Roger Clemens, so I can't really give Roger Clemens all that much glory for owning a couple World Series rings. I don't know. I, I think I, I don't know. I just I think that guys go for the championship, and I totally agree with you. There are guys that I would put on the my list of feeling exactly the way you do about Durant. But like I said, to me, the the marriage between the two teams changed my opinion. It wasn't like he was a guy that was just there for the ride. And there have been definitely guys, and Ray Bork probably one of them, out of his career, not really the impact player that he was with the with the Avalanche as he was the Bruins, and ended up you know winning that uh, winning the Stanley Cup and got to lift the Stanley Cup, which I will say the NBA the NHL celebrated. National Hockey League loved. Oh, that they, sure they did, sure they and, did. And, but I think in this situation for Kevin Durant, he was he somehow and amazingly ended up being the leader of that team and he showed his worth by the way he played by the way he led the team the the I mean the team not so much even yesterday because everyone loves is in love with each other yesterday when they win the championship but it was talked about pretty much all season long how well he fit in with his teammates and it just seemed to work and it it was part of their motivation and again he just didn't go there knocking on the door they wanted him I've asked this question before. I may have asked this question to you. By the way, uh, to go back to that last point, if Kevin Durant had not been there, all it means is that the ball would have been in the hands of other guys and Steph Curry or someone else would have been the star of the show. Regardless, when you watch that yesterday, when we see this happen, upon what grounds, if I am a fan of the Toronto Raptors, do I have even a scintilla of cause for optimism that I, there could possibly in any way be a chance for a championship. Because I saw none. I, I looked at that and I said, that championship series, Cleveland decimated the Raptors. Right. And Cleveland looked overmatched except for LeBron James. Uh, what reason would any Raptors fan around here 
have for optimism that their team could win a championship? Well, it's just not the Raptors. There's many teams. Oh, 100%. That, that, 100%. But you know what, Scott? And this is what blo- it blows me away because that has been a topic of conversation is that there's an, uh, an unequal sort of talent base in the NBA. But all I know, and this is from what I've read, that the ratings for the championship series were the highest they've had in many years. True enough. The, the, the ratings for last night's game were the highest in almost 30 years. The money that probably the NBA made or is is about to make this season is record-breaking. So even though there's this inequality in terms of the talent of the teams, that there's it's top-heavy with two teams, people aren't turning off the TV. So that's true. That's true. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. If if the league's making money and people are watching, they're doing something right. You know who else made a lot of money yesterday? Who? The Champagne Company. Apparently, the Golden State Warriors drank two or sprayed two hundred thousand dollars worth of champagne last night. Two hundred. That that is half of a decent house in Hamilton was sprayed onto the floor to celebrate a championship. You know what I'd like to see if that's true, and and that money that that figure was out there. Next time someone wins a championship, I would like to see the guy go. You know what? Let's give that to some charity, and we'll spray ginger ale around here, and we'll just pretend it's champagne. Well, I, I think that the, the Blue Jays over the last couple of years, yes. we've got to see those 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 intimate celebrations in the locker room with how much is getting sprayed around. But I think that's just North American pro sports. You know just, who lost a lot of money? Today? No. Taco Bell. Why? Because today, due to the Warriors' victory, nationwide, from 2 to 6, you could have walked into Taco Bell and picked up a taco. Even in Canada? In, in, just in the United States. In the United States. Oh, right. whew. I hate to think that I would have missed that opportunity. <laughs> this studio would have needed some warming by uh, for, for Bill Kelly in the morning to come in here. This airtight <laughs> studio would have needed a little treat. I know you're like your Dorito tacos. Uh, you know what? I don't eat a lot of tacos, but I would have made an exception. Hey, just before I let you go. Sure. Um, only because it's this happens so seldom that I cannot uh, that I have to bring it up. Did you see the first name of the player the Texas Rangers drafted in the first round of the baseball draft yesterday? That I did not see. Bubba. What? There's a guy named Bubba who was drafted in the first round. So I would encourage you to go look him up and make him your new favorite player. Bubba Thompson of Alabama chose baseball and the Rangers drafted him in the first round. I know whose shirt you'll be wearing when he makes his major league debut. From Alabama, he probably looks nothing like me. Um, I have no idea how to respond to that. Um, <laughs> he's wearing a Texas Rangers hat. If that counts for anything, are you wearing a Texas Rangers hat? I'll be sure to go buy one tomorrow. Well, if you don't have it on, then he looks nothing like you. <laughs> Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can watch him tonight at eleven fifteen and eleven thirty, and a bunch of other times. Always appreciate you coming on, sir. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. It's a great debate. It really is because, and it's not just basketball. We have seen many, 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 many athletes over the years go somewhere else. And you know what? It's probably not even just an athletic thing. We've seen people in business. We've seen people with all kinds of things jump to a winner because they want to win, but don't really, don't know that they're going to, if they don't, don't necessarily want to put in all the hard work. And even if they do want to put in the hard work, they say, oh, I'm never going to win. So I'm going to go. We've seen this a lot. Uh, you, you heard the, the argument you heard the debate there. Bubba thinks it's fine. I think that 
the whole thing, I think the whole thing looks just ridiculous. But you know what? He wears a ring, so who am I to say? He got his ring. There you go. That's all he wanted. He got his, well, that and the $30 million he was paid this year, roughly. But, and the ring. The $30 million and the ring. That's, you know, he could have bought a bunch of the rings, but it doesn't count. But the $30 million is nice, too. Just saying. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Getting you into the Beatles mood here. Mellowing you out for a little bit while we're going to dive into the best of the Beatles. Here's what we're talking about right now. It's an online magazine. I guess that's what we call it. Called Vulture.com. They do some interesting stuff. It's all culture and pop culture and things like that. Well, a writer on Vulture.com by the name of Bill Wyman. Not the former Rolling Stone or the Rolling Stone, by the way. Not him. It's a different guy with the same name, which means he probably should be a pop music, rock music writer. Has ranked every one of the 213 Beatles songs that was released in their 13 UK release albums. So he's gone through. There's 213 songs. And he has ranked, with explanations for the rankings, every single one of them. What should be in the top 10? What should be the best 10 Beatles songs of all time. Now, you know that you're going to disagree with some of these because the reality is there's probably 50 that you could put in the top 10 legitimately. So we know we can't fit 50 into 10 spots. So there's going to be some you don't agree with. But let's figure it out. Let's count these down. First of all, to help me do this tonight, a guy who is, I think, the reason I'm having him here is because I believe he is Hamilton's biggest Beatles fan. I, In fact, I have no doubt that he is the biggest Beatles fan in this city. But beyond that, by coincidence, he is the executive producer of this show. And more important than any of that, he is, as of Saturday, a newlywed. Jamie West, congratulations, <laughs> my friend. Scott, thank you very much. Yeah, exciting times. What can I say? I got to... Uh make a dream come true and and uh, marry the very lovely and extremely talented uh, Dr. Danielle Darrington, who's uh, got her own show on Saturdays at 10 a.m., the Dr. Danielle Show. I always get a plug in, don't I? Well, you do, and and I want to say that uh, we, we only have about 20-something minutes left, and that's probably all the time you can spare me because you still are on your honeymoon. So I'm just, you know, just, <laughs> but let's, let's try and do this before we run out of time sure. here. Before we get to the top 10, though, and I'm asking you, Cole, because you don't know what any of these are. What three? Give me three Beatles songs that you absolutely insist must be in the top ten for this to be credible. I want to hold your hand okay. for sure. Um, great driving energy. Um, I think uh, "Get Back" is another one that's a favorite of mine. And believe it or not, uh, in my top ten, um, I've got a feeling from "Let It Be." 
Okay. Um, those are unusual choices because they're not probably the most, the second two certainly are not the most popular, but I, I think I want to hold your hand. I would put it number one, actually. All right. Well, we had a Bubba O'Neill on just before you, and he also chose Get Back for the top 10. So we'll see if you guys are right. Anyway, let us start with number 10. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to play this, a clip of the song, and then I'm going to get your thought on whether or not it should be there and what your thought is on this being in the list. Number All 10, right. right off the bat, I'm willing to bet that A, almost nobody knows this Beatles song, and well, or not very well anyway, and B, people are going to go, huh? Here is number 10 on Vulture.com, the guy who came up with, ranked every single Beatles song with an exclu- with a big write-up so he didn't just whip it together. Here is number 10 on the list. It's a little song called Rain. The write-up for this as a bruising masterpiece, mostly from Lennon, right on the heels of Nowhere Man. Looking for even deeper sounds, the band hit on the trick of recording at a faster speed and slowing the playback. That gives this song its drawling, almost sepulchral, I can't even say the word, feel, punctuated by McCartney's primordial bubbling bass lines. Uh, number 10 song for the Beatles? No. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, no. It's a great song. It's a great song. It's not, but no, not in the top, not in the top ten. And I actually agree with uh, with the reviewers of you know words. He's he's right about it, and it does have a haunting Lennon vocal. But no, it's not in the top ten. I would argue that probably uh, if a hundred people had to be asked if they knew that song, five would say yes. I'm very familiar with it. Oh, I think there'd be more than that. You think, but I, but, they've but heard I, it, maybe, but to be very familiar and to even be able to tell you what the title of that, I'm not sure. But anyway. Yeah, no, yeah not, not, no, not in the top ten. Well, so we're off to a rough start. Number nine, I can tell you, everybody will know this song. This one, this would actually be in my top ten for sure. I'm not sure where it would be in my top ten, but I love this song. And back, in fact, when I was in high school, no, before high school, grade seven or eight, when I used to play the trumpet, exceedingly poorly, mind you, I used to play this on the trumpet. Now, you could never have recognized it as this song. It probably sounded like a moose whose foot was stuck in a bear trap. But nonetheless, I love this song enough to try and play it. Here is... Well, we'll just tell you. Play this song. Here's what it sounds like. Look at all the lonely people. Look at all the lonely people. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. I think what I was missing when I was playing this on the trumpet is the fact that it's really hard to emulate a bunch of strings when you're doing it, which kind of make the whole song. But as the writer says, uh, Eleanor Rigby, by the way, number nine, uh, the strings, he writes, are ferocious. I'll leave the whole rest of the thing. But that is that is a great song. You know, not only does it belong in the top ten, but it should be in the top five. Um, all right, all right. For sure. It's got a an absolutely chilling, haunting uh, vocal matched with uh, uh, incredibly emotive strings. It's it's a, it's just a masterpiece and really outside the box thinking in terms of uh, its construction and production. 
uh, for the time. And, and the inspiration of it, oddly enough, Scott, I don't know if you know this, came, came off of the earliest, the very earliest days of the Beatles. In fact, it came um, in the first few weeks that Lennon and McCartney met at, right out of the neighborhood that they, they lived in. It was simply a woman's name on a tombstone in a churchyard where they played all these gigs at this local church, and they hung out in this churchyard and saw these names on headstones, and one of them was Eleanor Rigby. There you go. And, cool story. there you go. There you uh, go. By the way, number 10 was Rain. Rain was a single from 1966. Eleanor Rigby was from Revolver in the same yep. year. Number eight, another one that I love, completely different sound, completely from, the, from Rubber Soul comes number eight on the list. It sounds like this. Number eight on the list, Norwegian Wood from Rubber Soul. Uh, the explanation given here, first of all, it talks about how this is the first use of a sitar in a Beatles record and that uh, Lennon may have been inspired or at least helped along a little by some uh, hallucinogenics. But um, uh, anyway, Jamie, uh, you put that one on the list as well? Yeah, I think it's below the top ten. It's a great song. It's it's up there, but it's um, not in the top ten. T- top fifteen, for sure, I think, but not... Uh, not top ten. Um, that, that's just my subjective opinion. No, it's, it's, uh, well, that's what that's all. These are subjective opinions, as I say. Yeah. Uh, number eight. Okay, number seven. Uh, a Paul McCartney ballad. Not that there's a shortage of Paul McCartney ballads, but this is not the one that a lot of people will expect to find in the top ten. It's not yesterday. Lisa through the glass is giving the thumbs down to this one already before the music even starts to play. I love this song. Whether it's top ten or not, I'm not sure. It sounds like this. To lead a better life, I need my love to be here. Here, making each day of the year, changing my life with a wave of hand. Nobody can. Here, there, and everywhere from Revolver in 1966. Uh, top 10? Um, not top 10, but top 20 for sure, yes. All right. Uh, outstanding ballad. Another. Okay, so we keep moving here. By the way, these are, again, from someone who online has spent all the time to go through every song of the Beatles that was released on their UK albums and rank them with long, detailed explanations, not only of the lyrics, but of the structure and of the all the stuff behind it. It's a really excellent piece of work. Number six. Now, if you thought that Rain was an unusual one to be in the top, then I'm guessing a lot of people are also going to look at this one and go, huh? That's the second time I've done that. I, I mean, it's starting to sound <laughs> a little bit like uh, the Scooby-Doo show. Um, number six on the list is called... Dear Prudence. Dear 
This is from the White Album. Again, it's called Dear Prudence. And interestingly, and I know you know this already, Jamie, Prudence was the sister of Mia Farrow, who accompanied the Beatles to go visit the Maharishi when they got into the whole Indian thing. Uh, that's who this song is about, Mia Farrow's sister, Dear Prudence from 1968. What do you think about having that one on the list? I think it absolutely belongs there. I think it's one of the I think it's one of the best songs uh, the Beatles ever did. I mean, it's really a John Lennon solo song, but it's um, it's outstanding. And yes, the, the story you told there about it is is quite interesting too. When you wrap that around uh, the the song itself, it's it's a beauty. I just absolutely love it. But I love the whole White Album. In fact, I would put the White Album at uh, in the top three Beatle albums of all time, probably the top two. And yet, somehow, that song also is not all that well-known by a lot of people. Familiar, perhaps, but I wouldn't say that was on the list of songs people are going to be humming in their car more often than not if a Beatles song pops into their head. All right, this next one, though, this next one, though, definitely in that list. And if I'm correct, and you can correct me on this one, this was the first Beatles song that most people ever heard if they were around back in the 1960s. 1963, this song came out. If everybody loves this song, but Lisa threw the glasses dancing to this one, so you know it's it's going to work sometimes. But what do you think about that one for the top ten, Jamie? Number five on the list. Please, please I, me. I think it belongs there. I think it's an absolute beauty. It's a classic, and there's a tip of the hat to Roy Orbison in it with yes. uh, John Lennon's vocal, and it's beautiful. Let's keep rolling because we have uh, we're running shorter on time, and we got to get through the last four, right. the top four of the. Now, this, again, this is the list of the Beatles' greatest songs by someone who has gone through every one of them and given an immense amount of thought to this, whether you agree or disagree. Number four, from the same year, same era, and in, in fact, in some ways, kind of a similar sound. And if there is one song of the Beatles that everybody has sung along to at one time or another, A, because the lyrics are not very complicated, and B, well, because the Flintstones picked up on this and used it in the Flintstones in some version eventually, it was this one. Of course, she loves you. Nineteen sixty-three. Uh, is there is there a more a song that is more synonymous with the Beatles? No, I don't think so. It's ab- it absolutely belongs there. It just it, I just love that early Beatles sound. It's amazing for a band. I know we got to keep moving here. A band that only had two hundred and thirteen songs, but the the different sounds that they possessed within a ten year period of time is quite yeah. amazing. And if you watched back in the seventies, uh, eighties, when Eddie Murphy was on Saturday Night Live and played Clarence, the Fifth Beatle, you'll know that the real name of that song was "She Loves You, Man." 
So just so everyone is convinced, the original name was She Loves You, Man, and it was written by Clarence, the fifth Beatle. Number three on the list. Now, here's the problem you're going to have, Jamie. You gave me three songs. I want to hold your hand, get back, and I've got a feeling. If you're going to be right, all those three have to be the top three on the list here. And I'm warning you, uh, you're not going to have all those three songs on the list. But number three, certainly one that has a long story behind it and is a brilliant, brilliant song. Number three, greatest Beatles songs of all time is this one. Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs Of every head he's had the pleasure to know And all the people that come and go Stop and say hello On the corner is Penny Lane, of course, being number three on the list. One of the great songs that, I, again, one of the songs that everyone sings along to all the time. Don't know how you can argue with that one, really. Absolutely not. It, it's it, it belongs there. I mean, you could have uh, you know you could have a dozen versions of the top three, and that fits the bill perfectly. Number two, there is a place, and I know you've been to the place named after this because I've seen the photo of you sitting in Central Park in New York on a what is it a star in the middle of the uh, of the park in, in uh, uh, it, ac- across uh, the street from uh, the the Dakota apartment exactly and lived. It's it, the, the the place is actually called Strawberry Field. Strawberry and Field, and it's named after this song, which comes in at number two. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Strawberry Fields Forever, of course, of course, it was a single, actually, that was released. Now, Strawberry Fields Forever, am I not correct that it was supposed to be part of Sgt. Pepper and it was released as a single instead? That's correct, and, and there were a bunch of songs that that didn't make it onto Pepper that became the Magical Mystery Tour. There all you go. All recorded in the same session. Not bad. Not a bad session. Not a bad little bit of work they did that time. Uh, that was from 1967. Number one, and number one is... Um, it's an interesting one because if I'm correct, this is played at the end of every one of Paul McCartney's concerts now, if I'm correct. At least part of it is. Comes from Sgt. Pepper, which we just chatted about last week. I know you went to the concert from um, Mr. C- uh, Claus that was uh, playing at the theater up in Hamilton. Yes. We had Mr. him on Mr. here. Claus. We had, and he, he, I hear it was a great concert. He had a, he, anyway, amazing stuff. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the greatest Beatles song of all time, whether you agree or disagree. Jamie says it should be I Want to Hold Your Hand. That's not what's on here. Number one on the list is this. A Day in the Life. Now, of course, this song goes all over the place. We we don't have time to play the whole thing, but it is, um, I think what makes that song so unique is that it's about three different songs in one. 
all of which could have been pulled apart and uh, and and been a hit. I, I think there were. You just said it. I think there were three different songs in, in progress there, put all together. Um, no, 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 should not be number one. Top twenty, yeah, <laughs> somewhere around eighteen or or seventeen on the list. Uh, certainly number one for the longest uh, end note of any Beatles yes. record. Twenty eight seconds on that last piano note. Um, you can time it and listen to it and time it. Um, it's a great song. Some oh, one, no. Okay, just we got to whip through this because we only have a minute or so left. Here are some of the other spots that some of the other great songs the Beatles did where they landed according to this list. Something, something in the way she moves. Number thirteen uh, was that one. Uh, Let it be number fifteen. Here yep. comes the sun. Number sixteen. Yeah. Uh, lovely Rita. I love lovely Rita. Uh, number nineteen. Hey Jude. Number twenty. I thought Hey Jude for sure would be in the top ten. I don't know how that one got left out of there. I saw her standing there. Number twenty one. Um, let's keep rolling here. While my guitar gently weeps, number 32, thought that would be higher for sure. Help, 36. Yesterday, 39. Hard Day's Night, 41. In my life, Hmm. in my life, I would have in there. That's one of my personal, anyway, I'm going on and on here. I'm trying to find, I want to hold your hand just so I can tell you how far down. Uh, Number 49, Jamie, you only missed by 48 spots. Wow. Wow Wowee. There you go. It's so subjective, right? All things Beatle are all things subjective subjective that's the beauty of it you now that you have lots of time you're happily married you got nothing to do with your life you're just sitting at home <laughs> you ought to take all these songs and do the jamie west version of where all this stuff should be you know what i think i'll do that and then i'll come back and we'll kill two hours of your show one perfect night and, well and next time that, we've that. got to because lisa's giving me the wrap it up because we're all way right. behind but thank you for doing this jamie thanks uh, scott the vulture.com like the bird vulture.com if you want to go and look up the whole list and then argue with send angry notes to the writer about where it all stood the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 am 900 chml